0: This is an ABC podcast. There's no business like show business, like no business I know.
1: Hello, welcome to Best Practice. I'm Richard Aidey. Today, another perspective on women in the workplace from a woman in the workplace. She calls her approach leaning in between. Let's begin with leadership. It's a perennial issue here on Best Practice. This weekend in Sydney, some of the best leaders are sharing their ideas on how to effectively lead as new challenges unfold this century. The 21st Century Leadership Summit's being held at the University of New South Wales, and one of those attending is perhaps rather unusual. She's been a performer, a choreographer, an artistic director, the chair of a funding body, and an internationally recognized scholar. Cheryl Stock was the inaugural head of cultural leadership at NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and she joins me now. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Richard. It's lovely to be here.
1: So what are you going to be talking about at this Leadership Summit?
0: Um, Well, the Leadership Summit is a chance for uh, young aspiring leaders and students to hear different perspectives from leaders around Australia in the world. Um, And I come from this cultural sector. And in fact, I'm the only one on the speaking that is from the cultural sector. And I guess I will be, well, not I guess, I will be bringing that perspective, uh, where in cultural leadership, in tandem with other leadership styles, you really need to look at multiple perspectives and how we can tolerate ambiguity. Because I feel we live in a very binary world. And um, I think that leadership challenges are very complex and need a nuanced understanding of relationships and communication. So I guess that's what I've been thinking about a lot.
1: I think that's why they asked you, because one hears that a lot about leaders being comfortable with ambiguity. Most of us are not really. It's, it's, It's human nature to want to have certainty. And I suppose what you know how to do is, is be able to live with that ambiguity.
0: I guess that's right. Um, as an artist or as a cultural, um, leader, if you want to use that term, I think that we do not enter a world of certainty when we, say as an artist, when you make a work and you have a team around you and they're waiting for you to create something, um, I'm fortunate as a choreographer and as a cultural leader, we create things together and we try and develop that shared vision together. But I think what's been instructive for me in my latest role as head of cultural leadership is to look at how we can include diversity of opinion and still have a shared goal and honour that diversity of opinion. And I'm not, I don't have an easy answer, but I think it is about having the conversations, and it's not just as simple as agreeing to disagree. It's actually trying to see the dilemma, the the challenge, the vision from different points of view, and then working out what is common and how you can have a shared vision and allow for differences. And that means. I think, for leaders, it's about relationships. Where is the person coming from? What are their goals and, uh, and aspirations? And how can that be part of the shared vision that you are asked to lead, for example?
1: Can I ask you, I suppose, no. about... To me, I think it would be instructive if we looked at choreography. Yes. Which is what your practice. Yes. Now, as a choreographer, I imagine you... You've got more than an idea of what you want to happen. You've, yes. you've 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 got you've you've got in a way a kind of script, but when you're creating it with with the dancers, you are sometimes going to get what would be called in in science emergent properties. So things happen in a way that you perhaps hadn't anticipated. Now, how do you, as the leader, kind of manage that?
0: That's a really good question. It's a that serendipity is what artists strive on, actually. So it, in probably any choreographer would tell you, you come in, some people come in with almost a blank canvas, some people are very prepared, but I don't know of anyone of, that I've known as a choreographer or myself that have not thrown that notebook away at some point. And um, because you make the work together, I'm talking about contemporary dance now, um, I think the concept People have to come on board with the concept. So before you even work with the dancers, you're probably working with a team of a designer, a composer, musician, a digital artist, whatever, and taking that concept to them. And I've always believed – I've been lucky in working mainly with uh, smaller companies – we're not like the Australian Opera and Ballet where you have a whole team and, and the design is preset. that we work together organically on that evolving. So um, I think that one of the most exciting things is having those conversations with the creative team and then as soon as you come into the studio sharing that with the dancers who will then actually shape that work and I believe that we make work with the dancers. Mm. We don't make it on the dancers or...
1: No, they're not You know, they're not just
0: interpreters. No, they're, indeed. they're co-creatives. And I feel that's actually probably formed my idea of leadership much more than all the theory I've read mm. <laughs> since I became head. Um, it's to do, and I guess you'd call it as leadership style, you'd call it a distributed leadership or a shared leadership. Um, of course, you make the final decisions. That's, and it.
1: I, that's what I wanted to get to because yes. ultimately – It seems that you must be the person who decides. Yes. Other people can have ideas and they might be better than yours, but you've got to decide that, yes, we'll do that.
0: That's right. I've got one kind of good example. We were working on a piece up in North Queensland where I was quite a while ago and I was working closely with the designer and I was very happy with this rehearsal and the dancers were really happy and I said to the designer, oh, come in and have a look. We're so excited about this. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, it's great. And then afterwards he said to me, you know, that's taken you off on a tangent and you don't need that piece of choreography. And I went, what? <laughs> you know, that's my favourite bit. And I really like that bit. I know. I was in, and the dancers were enjoying it, and, um, as they always do. But so I went away and thought about it and I, I thought about it and I got the dancers to do a run through, you know, of the – what we'd done to date and I thought actually he's right and sometimes that outside eye but someone who knows what piece is about and I said to the dancers we're gonna have to cut this and they were really upset um and but it was the right thing so I Mm. think you do have to be open to listen and I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lovely word called unknowing Okay. It's like, so sometimes you have to be prepared to be in a state of unknowing, and artists are often in that state if they're creating. And that means sort of recognizing your habits of mind and being able to have them shifted by someone else or for you for something to happen, either serendipitous in a nice way or a critical incident in a not so nice way, um, and being able to maybe shift what you would normally do to solve that problem.
1: I've got a question about unknowing. Yeah. I Because I suspect, but correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. that this unknowing thing only works if you've already got a quite good foundations of knowledge.
0: Oh, absolutely. You can't, yes, absolutely. And I guess for me, if you're talking about leadership, it is all about context. And sometimes we bring our decision-making processes from one context to another, and they may not be the right Mm. way to go. Right is not a good word, but it may not be the most effective way or the most for you to make that decision in that circumstance.
1: How important do you think a lot of the tacit skills of leadership are because I'm thinking you're a dancer and then a choreographer and a a lot of, if you said to a dancer, so what are you doing and why are you doing it here, they might struggle to explain it Mm -hmm. but they've learned how to do it, their body knows what to do. There's this tacit knowledge that sits at the heart of it Mm. and I'm wondering how important it is in leadership.
0: I think tacit knowledge is very important. It's... um And I guess one of the things I've been thinking about, it's one of the things we teach in the cultural leadership course and in other courses I've done and other iterations, is deep reflection and reflective practice, a kind of reflexivity. Not navel-gazing, but you have to trust your instinct to a certain point. And people talk a lot about authenticity, which isn't the same as tacit, but I think you do have to go with your instinctive um, knowledge But I also think you have to sometimes road test it. Sometimes it's so quick you have to make that decision instinctively. Other times I think you do have time to go, is that instinct the right one? Is that tacit knowledge all I need? Do I need something else? Um, But tacit knowledge is at the heart of everything we do, Mm. I think, yes.
1: As you explain this, I am struck by why you were invited to this because so many of the problems that we're facing in business and in public sector and in government are complicated and, and there is uncertainty. And in a good team, you're going to have forthright opinions and creative thinking. It seems to me that a lot of what you've been dealing with and teaching is very transferable to outside the artistic and cultural world.
0: Absolutely. And it's not for nothing that artists ask to come in and work on corporate courses and things like that. Um, I think it's a collaborative art form, especially the performing arts that I'm in. There is passion, huge passion to do it. You're not doing it usually for the money. You're not doing it for any ambition, really. You're doing it because you love it and you're passionate about it. Um, But it's also you, you can't do it on your own. So in the performing arts, it's collaborative. Those strong opinions uh, need to be listened to, I suppose, and I guess one of the things I've learnt. So I've been. I'm quite an impulsive person, is um, active listening. Really hear what people are saying because it's so easy to close off, and then miscommunication. That's the cause of nearly all problems in leadership. I think miscommunication, and also lack of trust. So to build trust, you need to have humility to listen and to unlearn. And I guess that's the crux of what I was coming to. You need to unlearn things. As You must have a lot of knowledge, you must have expertise, but sometimes you need to unlearn, I guess.
1: So we've been sort of talking about the challenges and the ways of solving problems and, mm. and creating things. I'm keen to know what you think, whether in the world of the arts and culture, whether the the rewards which are, for the most part, not really about remuneration. No. Whether they're a kind of unique thing as well, because that that might offer something to other people too.
0: Yes, I think there are other areas, but the arts—it's easier to see it. It's interesting because in in terms of research, um, we've looked at a lot of um, our cultural leadership students, and also I've in the, my past life, you know, uh, supervised a lot of doctorates um, about the arts, um, and I think that. One of the things we really do look at, and it's in health and education as well, is this idea of reflexivity. Um, and I think that's one of the things that um, we don't feel we have time for. And, oh, and most leaders don't don't feel they do not have time for it. And I know right up until you know, probably halfway through my career, or two-thirds of the way through my career, I did everything instinctively. And really, when I went back to study and do my PhD, and I had time to think and read and expand my intellectual horizons, I suppose, and learn how to translate my tacit embodied knowledge to share with others through words or vision, visual images and so on. So I've written a lot about this, about embodied knowledge. How can you make that understandable to other people? Because... We can be very esoteric in our, our particular languages, mm. about our discipline. And so that opened up for me um, the idea of the importance of making time for thinking and, and, and making time for discussion where, you know, you have these dreadful deadlines and, and all leaders have them. Uh, and it's really and hard.
1: E- even non-leaders have them, believe yeah. me. Yeah,
0: well, I think everyone's a leader, really. I've actually just reviewed a book on dance leadership where the premise was leaders don't have followers. And that was a really interesting one for me. And what the premise of that was, and this might be, not, won't be so interesting for CEOs or the corporate world, maybe, but it could be because what this author said, Jane Alexandra, she said that, and she had did case studies of all these different um, artists mm. and they're from all over the world, and she came up with this theory of leaders without followers and what she said was that what they do is contribute to the development ecology of the sector, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily in a position of having leaders in a either semi-permanent sense, sense. They might come and go where they have a leadership position, but they don't see themselves as leaders. And I thought that was a kind of interesting way of breaking down what the actual attributes of a leader are. And it's not necessarily about followers.
1: No, but it's making the culture. Yeah. And mm. And on that note, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you very much for Thank joining me today.
0: Pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard.
1: Cheryl Stock from NIDA. This is Best Practice on RN, the ABC Listen app, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard AD. If you're a woman in the workforce, the last few years have been all about leaning in. The bestseller from Facebook's Chief Operating Officer, Cheryl Sandberg, has been a compelling call to action for women of ambition. But Catherine Solman has a different take The author of Ambition Redefined, Why the Corner Office Doesn't Work for Every Woman and What to Do Instead, says work should be about participation rather than power. So what's been the response from women who've already broken the glass ceiling?
2: You know, I think there is mixed reaction. Um, And there would be different definitions of breaking the glass ceiling. So when you... When you think about breaking the glass ceiling so that you're a chief executive, there are not that many women, um, at least in the U.S., and I think it's elsewhere, who have reached that uh, pinnacle. However, uh, women who would be on the fast track to the C-suite, there is some mixed reaction. Um, So on the one hand, women who are still very much thinking that they're, they're going to reach that pinnacle or they're going to do everything that they can to get to that pinnacle, um, think of my book kind of as blasphemy that might be slowing down the race to the top in some way by you know not supporting the fact that, that women should be doing this. Um, but then there are a tremendous number of women who are seemingly on that fast track but they, they're not going to tell women next to them or tell their boss that they're really not sure that's where they want to go.
1: What we've had for the last few years probably is, is Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, being a kind of a, a defining book in a way, and what you're offering is, is a very different philosophical and practical approach.
2: Well, yes, because women have not only a professional role, they have two other big jobs. They have caring for children and also aging parents. And that's just a reality. And no matter how much you talk about the idea that men are, you know, pitching in more millennial men, but the majority of child care and care for aging parents is still falling largely on women. I can give you an example of a woman that I'm coaching. She's 41, she has young children. She went to Harvard Business School and Harvard undergrad. She is one of the um, senior executives at a top 50 fortune company and traveling from New York to uh, Europe monthly. And on one of those trips recently, she said, I can't do this anymore. And I don't want to do this anymore. I never see my kids. And I don't need this job to validate my ambition or my success. And so she came to me trying to figure out what else she could do. And she admitted that, that she's afraid to reveal this to her colleagues, to her boss, because she'd be perceived as a lightweight.
1: This is somebody who is an achiever who's been, I imagine, very hardworking and focused to get where she is and actually actually realising this herself would have been challenging enough.
2: Absolutely. The reality that I am pointing toward is that when you, well, I'm talking U.S., when you go to college, then you go to business school, Uh, start your career, you, you know, the sky's the limit, especially if you're going to one of these very prestigious schools, and you feel that, you know, you want to reach as high as you can in the corporate ladder. The reality is that when you're at that point, and if you're unmarried, you don't have children, the reality is you just don't know what lies ahead. It is difficult for most women to combine one of these, you know, very, very senior level jobs with family. It's just a reality. And, you know, many of the women who do have hot and cold running help, as Cheryl Sandberg has, um, or in many cases, they have a husband who has pulled back or is, you know, home with the children.
1: So more or less the heart of the book is that what we have to find more of is flexible work are there industries that do this better
2: well the interesting thing is that now in just about every industry you can find flexible work now it is easier when it is possible to work at home part of the time or to work in a shared workspace part of the time and not have a you know a big long commute and it's easier than to contain your hours. So if you think about technology, IT companies, they have many, many people who are working in a flexible way and sometimes working 100% remotely. Um, if you're a surgeon or a scientist, it can be more difficult uh, to be at home. Although I know a a very accomplished eye surgeon who is only working three days a week, Um, I also know an anesthesiologist that is working three days a week, Um, not necessarily working at home, but but these are two women who have families and were able to create a flexible schedule.
1: Yeah, though it, it also sounds like they're pretty much at the top of their game. When you're at the top of the game, your game, you have more options than when you're on the way up, don't you?
2: Yes and no. I mean, I, I think that there, there's an awful lot of flexibility now uh, in the mid range of employees, um, and especially when you're when you're talking about some of the fields where there just simply is a lot of flexibility. All
1: right. So, what can organisations do to help women? and not just women, actually, men as well, but with flexible work?
2: Well, I think that, first of all, they've got to talk about the elephant in the room. Because as I described that client of mine who was very afraid to bring up the fact that she really wanted to get off the fast track and do something different, most women are you know, afraid to say something if there isn't a flexibility policy that's very visible and in place. So they kind of suffer in silence, and then they reach a breaking point, and then at that point, it's kind of too late to get them to stay. So I think that companies have to kind of take the bull by the horn and, and, and know that women are facing all of these lending work and life issues and to start the conversation and to try to figure out ways that... They could make various teams work in a more flexible way. You know, a simple thing like uh, core hours. You know, if, if, if everybody had to be on the case from 11 to 3 every day and there was flexibility before 11 and after 3, you'd know that you could have a team meeting without having an email round robin that lasted for days.
1: Yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, I was really struck by this. You write that work flexibility is leading to a kind of new feminism.
2: I think it is. I think that it's you know it's a different um, work equality for women, um, and I think that women and men uh, need to to buy into this. There are many different forms of ambition, and you know many different ways to measure success. You can be a leader at any level of an organization.
1: So I suppose the take home is not think about getting to the top, but thinking about staying at it and finding work that fits your life.
2: Absolutely, and I call it leaning in between. I mean, there may be times when you are into heavy caregiving mode that you need to grow in place. It may just mean that you don't have the personal bandwidth for that big promotion, but at the level where you are, you're still ambitious, and you still want to grow your portfolio of skills and grow professionally.
1: Catherine, thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Catherine Solmans, the author of Ambition Redefined, Why the Corner Office Doesn't Work for Every Woman and what to do instead. You'll find details on our homepage at abc.net.au slash national. And that's it for this week. Thanks to producers Murita Dias and Georgia Power and sound engineer Isabella Troppiano. I'm Richard Avery.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great
2: ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.